Good morning. It is very nice to see all of you. If you have a Bible, please open and join me in Luke chapter 22. And if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and we will get one to you shortly. We're in Luke 22. We are continuing our series. We've paused the Gospel of John and we're continuing our series called Ecclesia, which is the Greek word that we translate church in our Bibles, predominantly. And the subtitle of the series is Features of a Faithful Church. And so this is the fifth message in this series. And if you're taking notes, the subtitle this morning is The Keys of the Kingdom Communion. We're looking at the Lord's Supper this morning. So we're in Luke 22. I'm going to read verses 14 down to verse 20 to establish the context. And then we'll pray and we'll look to the Lord and his word. Luke 22, beginning in verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Let's look to him together in prayer. Father, we want to commune this morning with you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus, we thank you that you, the second person of the Trinity, became man to live in our place, to take our sins upon yourself upon the cross, to suffer and die as our substitute, and to rise from the grave conquering all evil and removing our guilt and condemnation. You rose, Lord, for our justification. You rose into heaven and you poured out your spirit upon us who now indwells us forever. And we say thank you. Thank you, Lord, for the remarkable gift of your grace. We thank you, Lord, that your gospel not only saves, but shapes your believers and that your gospel builds the church. Lord, you've given us something remarkable and beautiful in the gift of the Lord's Supper. And so we pray this morning that you would help us understand your mind on this matter, why you invented it, why you gave it to us, and what it means for us to partake. So to that end, would you help us understand your word? Lord, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all of God's people said, amen. Well, we have seen these past weeks, but it bears repeating, Jesus loves the church. Jesus loves the church because the church is his invention. We are his people. Jesus loves the church. And we saw in the early messages of the series that Jesus builds his church and that the church itself will assail the gates of hell to rescue those who are dead in the trespasses and sins. But for our part, being the church involves knowing and doing what Jesus says about being a church. He's given us his Bible. He's given us his word. He invented us. He saved us and, and made us. But he, he doesn't send us out to go do our own thing. No, he creates us to be his church. And so he's given us his word. We're to observe all that he has commanded. And so for our part, being a church is to know and do what Jesus says. 
not to know and do what's right in our own eyes, but to do what's right in Jesus' eyes. We've seen in the past weeks that when a church has the gospel, it's a true church. A church that does not have the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection for our sins is not a true church. However, churches can exist on a spectrum of health. In other words, the more immature a church is, they have the gospel, but the more inattentive to the word of God or the more entertaining of sin a church is, the sicker that church is. Maybe you've read the book of Revelation before, and in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus gives the seven letters to the seven churches, and in those letters, he speaks words of encouragement and commendation, words of, of, of encouragement of how they are rightly following him, loving him, and obeying him, but he also provides correction that threatens them that if those churches don't repent of their sin, Jesus will remove their lampstand. Sick churches ultimately die unless they repent of their sickness. And so one of the things in this series, Ecclesia, is that we want to be attentive to what Jesus says makes a church a church, what we are and what we're to do so that we can be faithful and attentive to what his word says. For our part, by God's grace, with his word, by his spirit, we want to be as healthy as we can be as a church. And health is tied to obedience and humble repentance. And so the more mature a church is, the more attentive to God's word, the more humbly repentant a church is, the brighter the light of the gospel shines through us and lost people get saved and us saved people become more and more like Christ. That's why we want to look at what it means to be a faithful church. And this morning, as we look at communion or the Lord's Supper, Jesus has given us something beautiful. He has given us something sacred. He has given us something rich in communion with himself through the table, through the cracker and cup. Communion or the Lord's Supper is Jesus's invention. It is his plan and it is his gift to us. And so we need to let Jesus instruct us on what communion is. And so as in this series, we're looking at features of a faithful church, we want to understand rightly communion. Now, I can't say all there is to say regarding the Lord's Supper this morning, but we're going to pick up the diamond of this topic we're going to turn it over in our hands and look at different facets of the one diamond that is communion. So we're going to look at some different topics that relate ultimately to what it means for us to come to the Lord's table, which Lord willing we will do at the end of this message. So if you're taking notes, the, uh, the diamond of the Lord's Supper this morning comes to us in four parts. Here they are. Here's where we're going. You can take a picture of the screen if you don't have time to write it down. Number one... First, the symbolism of the supper. It's the sign of the new covenant. And for that, we will look again. He had our text I just read. We'll look at verse 20. From there, we will move into the second point, the sign of the supper and the keys of the kingdom. And for that, we'll look at Matthew 18, 17 and 18. So um, the past weeks, as we're looking at the features of the faithful church, we've been honing in on this topic of the keys of the kingdom. So this message is related to the keys of the kingdom. Point number three, the supper. Now we're going to ask a question. Can we self-excommunicate? Can we self-excommunicate? For that, we'll look at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, and then we will close with the setting and meaning of the supper the new Passover, and the new Exodus. And for that, we'll return to where we began in Luke 22. So that's where we're going this morning. So let's jump right into the first point. Number one, as we ask this big question, why did Jesus give us communion? 
what does the Lord's Supper mean? What are we to do with it? Point number one, the symbolism of the supper, the sign of the new covenant. So again, in Luke 22, verse 20, consider Jesus' words. I'm going to set these words before us, and then we'll return to these words at the end of this point. Jesus says, likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And then he gives the cup to his disciples. Now, let's think on a large entire Bible scale. The biblical story unfolds across six successive divine covenants. Where God establishes relationship with groups of people to bring his kingdom on earth. We've looked at that in the past, so you can go to the first sermon in this series to get more detail on that. But what's newer for us this morning is this fact. God associates a unique sign with each respective covenant. So God gives a picture. The signs serve as markers. They serve as symbols of the respective covenant. Each unique sign symbolizes and summarizes the specific covenant is tied to. For example, Genesis chapter 9, verses 12 and 13. In Genesis 9, God is speaking to Noah, and God says in verses 12 and 13 of Genesis 9, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. Verse 13, I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. So so do you see it? God establishes the Noahic covenant through Noah with all of creation, and the sign of the covenant is to see the rainbow, God's war bow, hung in the clouds, no longer fighting against the earth through a flood of water. It's the sign of the covenant. You see the rainbow, you see the bow in the cloud, and you're reminded of God's judgment on the earth and his promise not to flood it again. The sign of the covenant. Moving forward, Genesis 17. Two verses, 11 and 14, for the sake of time. Genesis 17, God is making the Abrahamic covenant. He's establishing a covenant with Abraham. Genesis 17, 11, speaking, mid-speaking to Abraham. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Skip down to verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people, he has broken my covenant. So Genesis 17, verses 11 and 14, the next covenant to come along as the Bible narrative unfolds is the Abrahamic covenant, and the sign of the Abrahamic covenant is circumcision. Here in Genesis 17, unlike the Noahic covenant and the rainbow for all the earth, here only Abraham's male biological offspring are to bear the sign of circumcision. It's an exclusive sign for a specific family chosen by God. It marks off who is in or who is out of the covenant. But here's a new detail. In Genesis 17, 14, did you notice it says, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off, killed from his people, for he has broken my covenant. 
on God's terms, the covenant sign was not optional. No sign keeping, no covenant keeping. If you wanted to be in the Abrahamic covenant, the males had to be circumcised. But we need to move forward in the text. Jumping forward to Exodus chapter 31. Exodus 31, verses 12 through 14, the Lord is now speaking to Moses. God is establishing the Mosaic covenant, the next covenant in the iteration of the covenants. Exodus 31, beginning in verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, so that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, the soul shall be cut off from among his people. So we pause there. There's a lot more in that text. I encourage you to go read it later. But here we see once again now in the Mosaic Covenant, God gave the Sabbath as the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. But if you noticed in the middle of verse 14 that I just read, any Israelite who did not keep Sabbath was to be put to death because he broke the covenant. No Sabbath keeping, no Mosaic covenant keeping. So do you see the biblical pattern? Do you see the biblical logic? Do you see the clarity of the text? If we pause here for a moment, we see that God gives signs to the covenants. Each sign is respective to that covenant and the signs are given by God. They are external, right? They're visible. You can see them. They're corporate. They mark off a people, and they're objective, meaning they're outside of us. They're not optional. They're not subjective. Circumcision didn't depend upon how you felt that particular day. Sabbath-keeping didn't depend upon how you felt that particular day. They are signs of the covenant. So think about it. What is God doing? The signs revealed the covenant and the covenant people. Let me say that again because you must understand this about how the Bible works. The signs reveal the covenant. Remember, they summarize and symbolize the details of the covenant. And they show who the covenant people are and are not. So what do I mean? Covenant signs are like wedding rings. And in fact, Scripture tells us on a human level that a marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman. Covenant signs are like wedding rings. My wedding ring shows that I am covenanted with and to my wife. My ring is a symbol that my wife and I belong to one another. My ring doesn't just say something about me. It says something about us, my wife and I. Something exclusive about us. My ring is about two people. My ring is corporate in nature. It's not privatized, just me and my precious. <laughs> my ring points to the people who belong to the covenant, David Berry and Rachel Berry. And your rings do the same to your respective covenants. The ring is a symbol. The ring summarizes. It shows who belongs to the marriage covenant, me and my wife. My wedding ring is an external and objective reminder. It's a picture that I am married. It's a symbol for all to see and a reminder for my wife and I of our mutual vows and covenant with each other. That's what a ring does. The rainbow with Noah, circumcision with Abraham, Sabbath with Moses, 
in the same way point beyond themselves, outside of themselves, to a corporate covenant relationship between God and his chosen people on God's terms. Covenant signs are objective, meaning the truth of what they symbolize is not determined by one's feelings or opinions. That would be subjective, meaning that the, the purposes of the sign would be determined by my tastes, my perspectives, my desires. But I hope that you can see now the rainbow and circumcision and Sabbath are point beyond themselves, and it's not about how people felt. They're like wedding rings, so to speak, to show who is in and out of the covenant, and they symbolize the covenant. So covenant signs are designed by God. They're defined by God for the purpose of symbolizing and summarizing the respective covenant. And under Abraham and under Moses, it was the death penalty for someone to not keep the sign. Because if you didn't keep the sign, you were breaking covenant with God, like taking the wedding ring off and throwing it away as if you were no longer married to your spouse. So in this way, covenant signs aren't a matter of conscience. You didn't keep it if you felt like it. They're not optional. Now, now that Jesus has come, and Jesus has fulfilled and completed all the previous covenants, along with their covenant signs, what is the sign of the new covenant. Once again, Luke twenty-two twenty. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. When Jesus says in verse 20, the cup is the new covenant in my blood, Jesus is now instituting the sign and symbol of the new covenant. When he says the cup, the cracker and cup, they are the sign and symbol of the new covenant. Don't miss this. Don't miss this. So looking back to last time, along with our one-time baptism, which is the entry sign into the new covenant, the regular practice of sharing the Lord's Supper together is the ongoing sign of the new covenant. So, for example, just as Israel was to keep the weekly Sabbath to show that they kept the Mosaic Covenant, we as believers are to regularly gather to regularly keep and show that we are in the New Covenant through communion. Do you see the correspondence? That's the logic of Scripture. So the wedding ring of the New Covenant, so to speak, is the Lord's Supper. It shows forth the ring of our marriage to Christ, as it were. So what is the Lord's Supper then in this first point? It is the external, corporate, objective sign for those who are in the new covenant. Why do we take it? Because it shows we're in the new covenant. That's what scripture indicates. So that leads us then to the second point then. What is the relationship between the sign of the supper and the keys of the kingdom? A point that we've been in these past few weeks. Now think about the logic of scripture. The normal, regular pattern of scripture is that those who believe in Jesus are baptized, then they come to the Lord's table. The normal pattern of scripture is not Lord's table than baptism. The logic of scripture, the normal regular pattern is to be baptized than communion. Baptism, so to speak, is the key that opens the door of the church to the Lord's table. Baptism is the key that opens the door of the church to the Lord's table. Now, 
We heard a few moments ago, Scripture tell us that under the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenants, if someone refused or neglected the respective covenant signs, they were killed. No sign, no covenant. Now, of course, Jesus does not tell us to kill people who refuse to get baptized or take the Lord's Supper when they otherwise should. Praise God. We are in a different covenant. It's a different time. Thank you, Jesus. But there's a correlation. There's a correlation. What does Jesus command, command of a local church to do with a person who habitually and willfully lives in unrepentant sin, refuses to renounce the sin, and denies the gospel with their life? What does Jesus command a church to do in Matthew 18? In Matthew 18, the church is required to excommune a person who is habitually unrepentant. That old word, excommunication, means to excommune. Ex means out of, from, to withhold from communion, to withhold from participation in the covenant sign. You see the logic of Jesus when he tells us to do this. Listen to Matthew 18, not the whole thing, just verses 17 and 18. This is, this is after many steps of pursuing with tears and grace on an errand of grace to call someone back. The final step, listen to verses eight, Matthew 18, 17. Jesus says, if he refuses to listen to them, it's two or three witnesses, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you, Jesus continues, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It's the keys of the kingdom from Matthew 16. In Matthew 18, the progress begins with, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. And if it comes to the final step, and by the way, the New Testament has a lot to say about church discipline. Sometimes we continue to treat the person as a brother, so we'll look at that, Lord willing, in coming weeks. But right here in the context of Matthew 18, there's a designation change from brother to Gentile and tax collector. That is someone outside the covenant community. So the church across all denominations and all of history has understood church discipline to be excommunication because the person is barred from the Lord's table. Why are they barred from the Lord's table? Because they are living a life that breaks the new covenant. They're, they're like people outside the covenant community. So don't miss this connection here. Don't miss the connection of the keys. Baptism brings us to the Lord's table. And church discipline removes us from the Lord's table. And both... Baptism and excommunication is how the church uses the keys of the kingdom to bind and loose. So if you're just joining us, you'll need to go back and listen to the previous messages to understand what I was just talking about as we're going into detail on what Jesus teaches when he gives local churches the keys of the kingdom of heaven to bind and loose. So Matthew 18, this passage, Jesus authorizes the church to remove the designation of brother that was placed on a person at baptism, right? The naming ceremony, baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Welcome brother or sister into the church family. This is a name removal where we declare them now Gentile and tax collector, a person outside the new covenant. So with the keys then, listen, with the keys the church either admits or removes a person from the Lord's table. 
with the keys of the kingdom, the church either admits or removes a person from the Lord's table. Hence the analogy that I've been giving, the keys of the kingdom come with three keys on them. A key to the baptismal after a gospel confession and welcome into the church. A key to the table, so to speak. And then the key of excommunication, if necessary. So that's the connection between the supper and the keys. But now we move to this third point. The third point is this. Can we self-excommunicate? Can we self-excommunicate? I I wonder if you've ever thought of that question before. I got saved and... I got saved in a, tr- in a tradition that functionally taught, functionally, they never used that phrase, self-excommunication, but I was taught that there are many times and many reasons that I should refrain from taking the Lord's Supper on my own. In other words, I was taught self-excommunication. And I'm going to teach you from the Bible that that is not Right? That is wrong. And I hope that you even hear these words now and it's kind of jarring to hear that and given what we've already seen about the new covenant being the sign or the uh, the supper being the sign of the new covenant that we can't self-excommunicate but I'm getting ahead of myself. Scripture has established for us the Lord's Supper is the external corporate objective sign of the new covenant that proclaims the gospel. That was the first point. But I think, unintentionally, many Christians treat the Lord's Supper the exact opposite. We don't view or treat the Lord's Supper of how Jesus teaches it, external, corporate, and objective. We treat the Lord's Supper as privatized, subjective, and optional. What do I mean? We unintentionally, unintentionally, I'm going to assume the best here, many Christians treat the Lord's Supper as privatized because we view it as just me and Jesus moment. Close my eyes, bow my head, turn in on myself, and it's just me and Jesus and everyone else irrelevant to this moment. I mean, we're, we're here, we know we take it together. Jesus did it with the disciples in the upper room, take and divide among yourselves, one cup, one bread. But really, functionally, when we do this, we are not making it a corporate, we're making it privatized. We treat it as subjective in that it depends on how I feel. How am I doing on my Christianity today? Level seven success? level three, a 10, then we approach the table based on how good we are at being Christians, meaning it's subjective. It's my taste, my preference, my opinion, how I feel. We make it about us, subjective, when it's objective about Jesus and me secondarily. And unintentionally, we treat it as optional, related to the subjective piece, that I can take or leave the Lord's Supper. In fact, sometimes they'll put a moral ought to it. You ought to leave the Lord's Supper until you X, Y, Z. Do these things to make yourself right and clean yourself up. Then you can come to the Lord's table. In short, I think many Christians... And I did this in my early walk with the Lord. Many Christians regularly and functionally self-excommunicate from the Lord's table based on how they feel, how they think they're doing in the fight against sin, and a misinterpretation of Matthew 5, 24. And a misinterpretation of Matthew 5.24. Now, we don't have time to go there right now, but let me summarize. It's the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is preaching. 
And Jesus in Matthew 5, in this early portion around verse 24, he's getting into the topic of of anger, explosive, retaliatory, vengeance-seeking, revenge, anger. He's talking about that. And he's talking about interpersonal conflict. And there in Matthew 5, under the Mosaic Covenant, as he's speaking to a crowd under the Mosaic Covenant, he uses a number of illustrations to make a point about anger. One of his illustrations is about leaving your Levitical sacrifice at the altar to go be reconciled with a person. Here's what happens in many churches. That text is wrongly applied to the Lord's Supper. And the logic is, just as Jesus said, leave your gift at the altar and go be reconciled, for some reason the logic doesn't make sense. Here, you just don't partake of the Lord's Supper and you don't go be reconciled, you just refrain. People wrongly apply that to communion, so if someone, somewhere in the world has something against you, don't partake. I mean, you should still go to church, still sing the song, still pray, still listen to the sermon, just don't take the Lord's Supper, thereby elevating the Lord's Supper above everything else that we do in church, which we should not. I'm saying that is biblically wrong. In Matthew 5, exegetically, contextually, Jesus is not teaching about the Lord's Supper. Do you know why? He hadn't invented it yet. It's a different point on a different topic. Matthew 5 is not about the Lord's Supper. Let me give you a positive example. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is a long text about taking the Lord's Supper. And in verse 28, listen to this command. It says, let a person examine himself then let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup so listen again to the simple words of the apostle paul here let a person examine himself and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup examine then eat examine oneself then eat it does not say Examine yourself, then refrain if someone somewhere has something against you. Or it doesn't say examine yourself, and then if you see that you're, you're losing the battle to sin, then refrain. Paul does not say that. He says examine, then eat. That's the command in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. If Matthew 5 was speaking of refraining from the Lord's Supper then Matthew 5 and 1 Corinthians 11 would be a contradiction to each other in the Bible. But they're not a contradiction. Examining oneself is first and foremost reflecting on the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, living sinlessly and perfectly in our place, loving the Father in our place, taking God's wrath in our place, rising from the grave in our place for us. Praise God. We examine the gospel, we reflect on Jesus, we reapply the gospel truths to ourselves, we examine ourselves, and yes, examination also includes broken relationships, ongoing sin, and needing to repent of those things, but the pursuit of reconciliation is after the table, not refraining from the table. So listen, I hope this lifts some burdens off of some of you who have um, adopted this mindset. Personal sinlessness is not a requirement to come to the table because then no Christian could ever come to the table since every Christian is in the middle of our sanctification. And what we do is we elevate some sins as worse than others and bar ourselves from the table as if we become the Lord of deciding what sins do and do not permit us to come to the table. Sinlessness is not a requirement to come to the table because then we never could. 
Listen, the objective sign of the new covenant, the objective sign of the new covenant does not depend on how good you are. The objective sign of the new covenant depends on how good Christ is and his finished work for us. It is Jesus' sinlessness that permits us to the table, not ours. It is Jesus' sinlessness that brings us to the table over and over again, and it's our belief in Jesus' sinlessness given to us in the gospel. That's the prerequisite to the table. Faith. Faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we can come to the table to be reminded of the forgiveness we've already received through his blood that's washed away our sins. It's Jesus who brings us over and over again to the table. So the sign of the supper is objective. It preaches. It points to the finished person and work of Jesus by faith. The supper points outward to each other and upward to the Lord, high and lifted up, shining in the light of his glory. The supper is corporate. It's for each other. The supper is for us, not privatized and individualized. The supper proclaims the gospel. It proclaims, I am in the new covenant. That's what it says. So then to temporarily Withhold the supper from oneself is to make the supper something Jesus does not make it. So when you withhold the supper and you don't partake, you in that moment are not preaching the gospel because the supper preaches the gospel to our unbelieving children who are with us, to our unbelieving friends who are visiting around us, when we take corporately and when we fence the table, inviting only believers to come, it shows forth the gospel of who's in and out of the gospel. When you don't take it, you are refraining from showing the gospel to unbelieving friends who are here, your children and your grandchildren. When you don't take the Lord's Supper, when you otherwise should, it's functionally saying, I'm rejecting the gospel. And it's functionally saying, I'm no longer part of the new covenant. That's why I said self-excommunication. Jesus does not give us permission to self-excommunicate. Only the church can do that. That's Matthew 18. So friends, don't do it. No doubt the supper is emotional. It's beautiful. It's personal. There are subjective elements. I do examine myself, but there's a reason we call it communion. It's the, it's, com means with, and union is the oneness that we share. It's showing our oneness together from the one cracker and one cup. So the supper is about the new covenant, and the supper is about making the invisible people of the new covenant visible. Hands go up to mouth, and you see who is in the covenant. And that's by God's design to mark off who is in and not in the new covenant. When we lift cracker and cup to our mouths, we show forth the people of the new covenant. The covenant sign makes the covenant people visible. We show that we still keep our gospel testimony that we proclaimed at baptism. There's one final reality on this diamond. We're picking up this stone. Now we're going to turn it and look at one other facet. It's the final one. We've seen that Jesus gave the Lord's Supper as the sign of the covenant. We've seen how the Lord's Supper and the keys of the kingdom relate because baptism admits us to the table and the key of excommunication removes us from the table. Here we've seen that we can't self-excommunicate but now let's take one final step. Why this way? Why a meal? Why now? Why at this time? The setting and supper, the new Passover and new Exodus. Look again with me at Luke 22. Look again especially at verses 14 and 15. 
verse 14, when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table and the apostles with him. And look at verse 15. And Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So the setting of the supper, do you see what's going on? Of all the times, of all the seasons in, the, in Israel's calendar, God has deliberately orchestrated and timed that Jesus' death and resurrection would occur at the Passover. Here is Jesus engaging in the Passover feast, which was an annual memorial feast year by year by year for the people of Israel. And now here's Jesus, God the Son, seated with the apostles, and they are partaking in this Passover. And Jesus has earnestly desired to eat this Passover with them before he suffers. Now we know the text goes on. That's where he says, uh, take this bread, this is my body broken for you. Take this cup. This is the blood of the new, this is the new covenant in my blood. Why the Passover? In short, all that the Passover that we read of in the second book of the Bible, in the book of Exodus, all that the Passover accomplished, Jesus is now accomplishing on an eternal and cosmic scale. The Passover and the Exodus were prophetic. They pointed beyond themselves to something even greater. Now you may recall the Passover was the 10th and final plague against Egypt, written about in Exodus chapters 11, 12, and 13. There we discover that the people of Israel, in bondage to slavery, they were to take a lamb, they were to slaughter the lamb, they were to take the blood of the lamb and cover the doorposts of their homes with the blood of the lamb, then go into their homes and eat that lamb while the angel of death passed over homes, passed over homes in Egypt covered by the blood. And if a home was not covered in the blood of the lamb, its firstborn died. If a home was covered in the blood of the lamb, its firstborn lived. Families would eat the lamb together. If the family was too small of a family, they would join with other families under one roof to eat the lamb in this Passover feast. And of course, the Passover then, when the angel of death passed over those homes, it led directly to the exit or the exodus from Egypt. And the people were emancipated from Egypt and their evil overlords. And the people embarked on their way to the promised land through the Red Sea. Now later in the Bible, the writing prophets, Isaiah through Malachi, pick up the notion of Passover, of the Exodus, and they declare, they prophesy another Passover, another Exodus is going to come. And it's going to come. And it's not only going to lead to the paradise of a renewed earth, it's going to be an Exodus from sin itself and God's wrath against sin a change of the human heart. The longing of Scripture was for another Passover. The longing of Scripture was for another lamb's blood. The longing of Scripture and all the prophets was another exodus. And so God designed all of that because of Jesus Christ. God designed the life, death, burial, resurrection and ascension as new creation, Jesus Christ to occur at the Passover to signify the time has come. 
and all of the first Passover and the first Exodus prepared for, now God is doing on an eternal and cosmic scale through Jesus. In the same way Israel believed God's word, trusted the sign of the Lamb's blood on their doors, so too we, by faith, believe in the blood of Jesus to cover us from God's wrath, to wash away our sin, remove our condemnation, and adopt us into God's family, going from God's adversaries to God's beloved children. In the same way the people of Israel pass through the waters on the way to the promised land, we which scripture calls the baptism of Moses, we pass through the waters of baptism at the beginning of our exodus. When we come out of the water, we are showing that we are new creation and we are embarking on our pilgrimage to the promised land. When the cup symbolizes Jesus' blood and the bread of his body, we are depicting the gospel of our deliverance by faith. Deliverance from Satan, deliverance from the penalty of sin, deliverance from death, deliverance from the curse of the law, deliverance from God's wrath because God saved us through his son by faith. That's what the table means. That's why we're enacting the true Passover every time we take cracker and cup. It's why scripture tells us, do this in remembrance of of me. It's why 1 Corinthians 11:26 says, "For as often as you eat of the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes." The meal is proclamatory. It preaches the gospel. In this way, it proclaims the gospel to us who still believe and still know Jesus. And it also proclaims the gospel to our unbelieving family and friends among us who don't yet know Jesus, but observe us doing this and recognize that's a picture of what Jesus did. This, friends, is why we take the Lord's Supper, the sign of the new covenant, the new Passover, new Exodus meal. It preaches the gospel and shows that we are in the new covenant together. Amen? Amen? Lord, we thank you for the remarkable gift, this portrait, this picture, this meal that we take together that is not about us, only secondarily, but you primarily. Preaching your good news that Jesus, you are the Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And your brilliance and wisdom that like the rainbow or circumcision or Sabbath, now we take the Lord's Supper to show that we are members of the new covenant community, the church. So Lord, we pray that you would fill our hearts with wonder and praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.